Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. listeners the weather is getting warmer the days are getting longer and that can only mean one thing it's time for new interns to hit the hospital don't worry though we've got your back i'm eden clark and i'm shanaz hosan and this series will give you some practical tips and tricks for dominating your intern year in this episode we're going to have some fun with a rapid fire review of the common scary pages you're very likely to get this year first nina what's your general approach to addressing pages from the floor I think whenever I get an urgent or an emergent page that makes me a little scared, the first step is just to breathe. I've noticed talking to interns and junior residents that often in these situations, the initial move is to panic. It really doesn't help anyone to panic, yourself included. 99.9% of the time, you have a little time to figure things out, get a lay of the land, and make a plan. So before you answer that stat page or walk into the coding patient's room, just take a deep breath, clear your mind, and then go. You know a lot more about these patients than you think you do, even these early days of residency. The next tip I have is to always err on the side of seeing the patient. It gets really easy in residency to become attached to your computer screen and your pager. If you're getting paged over and over again, if you're concerned at all, or if you just aren't even really sure what's going on, just go see your patients. I promise you'll get more information from looking at them, talking to them, and chatting with the nurse than you ever will from back and forth chart checking and phone calls. Third is knowing your toolbox. There are a lot of people who can help and studies that can give you a lot of information about an unstable patient very quickly. From a person standpoint, you have your senior residents and attendings, but you also have people on other teams, the bedside and charge nurses, the rapid response or stat team, and a handful of ICUs with people who can help you if you need them. More on this when we get to the next part, but you also have a handful of labs and imaging studies that can give you a lot of information if you know how and when to apply them. In general, a CVC, BMP, VBG or ABG with lactate, a chest x-ray, and an ultrasound machine can give very rapid and pretty comprehensive information. Finally, load the boat. All of these people I listed before are here and have almost certainly got years of experience with hospitalized patients that you just don't have when you're at this stage. Don't let a patient decompensate alone. As a senior resident, I'm never mad when somebody tells me that they're worried about a patient and they're actually okay. But times when patients are decompensating and I don't know about it keep me up at night. We all know that this is part of the learning curve for the job we do, and a great way to get better managing sick patients is to loop people in who know more about it than you do and watch how they do it. That was a really great overview on how to approach pages while keeping your cool and not panicking. Now that we got the framework, let's get into some of the most common pages that will make your stomach turn over as an intra. The pages we talk about today should generally all be reasons to call your seniors as soon as possible, especially during your first few months, and as you're developing your own judgment for sick versus not sick. Depending on your seniors' preferences and your comfort level, you might be able to start workup and management before you call, but at a minimum, you should have a working plan that you can rattle off and try to give your seniors a heads up as early as possible so that they can get involved and help you out. You should also be considering the level of care that the patient is receiving. If they're on the floor, do they need to go to the ICU? If you're not sure, the nursing staff will probably have some kind of sense. So keep that in mind when you are 
talking to the nurse about someone's clinical status and a potential plan for management. If they're saying that they aren't comfortable or they cannot take care of the patient appropriately on the floor, take that into consideration a range of transports so the patient does receive their appropriate care. Yeah, at our hospitals, if a patient needs anything more intense than every four hours monitoring, that generally is an indication for ICU just from a nursing staffing standpoint, which is something I really didn't understand until I started my intern ER. So I think even having that kind of thing in mind as you triage these and decide what level of care is appropriate for these sick patients is really important. All right, Shanaz, let's get into it. Let's see how you would manage a hypotensive patient on the floor. All right. When it comes to hypotension, your job is to determine whether or not the patient is in shock. And if so, try to figure out what kind of shock. The most common reasons for hypotension is measurement error, patient with a low baseline BP, dehydration, hypovolemia. But like I said, until you can tell yourself it's not shock, you're also considering septic hemorrhagic, cardiogenic, and obstructive shock. When you're on the phone with the nurse, be sure to confirm that a recent full set of vitals has been done. If it sounds like the real deal, you can ask them to get started on a few initial steps in management and work up so you can get the ball rolling pretty quickly even before you even see the patient. Have them start working on getting an EKG, calling in the x-ray team for either a checks x-ray or a KUV potentially, making sure that they have fluids hanging, ensuring that an accurate urine output has been measured. If it really seems like the real deal, call the rapid response team right away. There is no harm in calling them sooner rather than later when you're concerned about a patient that is deteriorating. On my way to the room, I typically pull up the hospital's chart on my phone. I check their most recent admission HMP, and I also check their most recent note from the primary team of the day. I look at any recent preoperative notes that may go over their cardiac history or pulmonary history. In addition to that, I pull up their most recent labs and imaging studies to see how those are looking so I can get a sense of how was the patient looking today. A lot of times, especially when you're on call, these aren't going to be your primary patients, so you won't know them like the back of your hand like you will with the patients on your team. So this is an easy way to get a quick sense about patients that you might not be as familiar with while you're on the way to their room. So all of this information I'm getting from the chart as I'm walking towards the patient room. When I'm in the doorway, I can get a lot of information before I even talk to the patient using my ABCs. The ABCs really are my framework for addressing any type of urgent and emergent page so I can get a sense of the patient's stability before even doing any further on exam. The things I'm looking at is, are they protecting their airway? Are they able to speak visibly having difficulty breathing? Is their oxygen already on them? Also look at the heart rate and a BP. Then when you're talking to them, you can do a quick ANL, see if they're oriented. And then typically I will do a lung exam, a cardiac exam, including distal pulses. And I can feel their extremities. And then you have abdominal exam, especially in a post-operative patient. After the exam, we'll be ordering labs and imaging potentially, making sure we have accurate urine output or maybe putting in a Foley. And all of these will help you get some kind of indication of if it's shock, what type of shock it will be. If we are thinking about septic shock, get blood cultures. If we're thinking about cardiogenic shock, make sure you get troponins. Again, EKG if it hasn't been done already. And also consider bedside echo exam. The bedside echo will also be helpful in obstructive type of shock. Once you get all the labs in for the workup, you have to start managing this patient. Typically, you can order an IV fluid bolus pretty safely for right off the bat, unless you are really concerned about bleeding or potentially a cardiogenic shock. If you were thinking that the patient is bleeding based on the history or your exam, 
you should order blood product for resuscitation, but make sure the patient does have good peripheral IVs and you need to stop the bleed. If you're concerned for hypovolemic shock, those fluid boluses should improve the BP. If you're concerned for sepsis, you need to start empiric broad-spectrum antibiotics and pressors might be needed, so the patient might need to go to the ICU. If you're concerned about cardiogenic shock, why? Is the patient having an MI? Is there something else going on? And then if you are concerned about an obstructive type of shock, figure out the type of etiology. Does it need a surgical fix or do we just need chest tubes placed like with a pneumothorax? All right. I think that's a pretty good overview of the hypotension pages, especially for knowing what not to miss in these patients. Nina, do you want to talk about hypoxemia next? So you'll get this page pretty frequently. I think a lot of postoperative patients will end up with something like atelectasis or volume overload, depending on initial presentation, and especially if patients who came in and got massively volume resuscitated initially in their hospital course will often end up with some hypoxemic result of that later on down the line. But you also don't want to miss things like PEs, pneumohemothoraces, or pneumonias, which are also pretty common in our surgical populations. Similarly, I'll start like Shanaz did on the phone with the nurse who's telling me about this finding. I want to make sure that I am understanding of what type of supplemental oxygen that the patient is currently requiring, a trend over the last couple of minutes or hours, and how rapidly that requirement has been changing. Uh, this is really important because a patient who's already on high-flow nasal cannula is at really high risk of further decompensating, and that might be somebody who I walk much quicker to their room than somebody who's on two liters of nasal cannula. I can also similarly ask the nurse to help get the initial workup going. I can ask for an ABG or a VBG. I can ask for a basic set of labs. And then a chest x-ray is also very typically part of my workup for a newly hypoxemic patient. I can ask for the rapid response or stat nurse team to be at the bedside or their respiratory therapist to be there to help out with anything that might be going on. In the elevator as I'm heading up to this patient's bedside, again, I'm looking at the history, specifically pulmonary or cardiac disease. Uh, PE risk factors are really important to pick up on if you have them. Most surgical patients, as a hint, have a PE risk factor. Uh, and then are they at risk or do they have a known pneumo or hemothorax that I need to be monitoring? Has there been any new concern for pneumonia or another pulmonary process in their postoperative course? Or have they been vomiting and is, should I be concerned about aspiration or something like that? So I can develop my differential for hypoxemia as I'm just walking and reviewing the patient's chart on the way to their room. Immediately after arriving, again, I'm going through my ABCs, so I want to evaluate their airway, breathing, and circulation to determine the stability of this patient, if they're appropriate to stay on the floor while I get more information, or if we really need to rapidly move them up to the ICU or a higher level of care. In terms of a specific toolkit for evaluating and managing patients who have new hypoxemia, the first is obviously supplemental oxygen. Uh, I mentioned already that high-flow nasal cannula can predict patients who are at high risk for clinical deterioration, but you also have teams in the hospital that can intubate a patient if you really need to go that route. So I think having all of that in your back pocket is really critical, and knowing that you have resources that you can escalate the amount of supplemental oxygen you're giving to your patients is really important to be aware of. You can start your workup with things like a blood gas, a chest x-ray, and routine labs, as well as an EKG. And then consider a CT angiogram of the chest if you're concerned about a PE. This is definitely something that you should run by your seniors initially, but this is also pretty high on the differential for most hypoxemic postoperative patients. If you have signs of volume overload, you might consider diuresis in these patients. 
Uh, and keep in mind that you really need to be cautious because these patients can decompensate very quickly and very often will need a higher level of care, if only for monitoring. One thing that really confused me when I was an intern was the difference in the utility of an ABG versus a BBG and when to order each one. The Internet Book of Critical Care has a really great overview of this, and we'll link that in our show notes today. Uh, but generally speaking, I think of an ABG as better for evaluating oxygenation problems, whereas a VBG is really good for ventilation problems. ABG is generally time-consuming, it's more painful for patients, and it may actually give you a venous sample, which can really complicate its interpretation. So I try to reserve ABGs for patients who are really concerned about oxygenation issues in particular. So that means for the vast majority of my patients, including those patients with early shock or other signs that I'm worried about more the hypercarbic or hypercapnic side of things or pH issues, I will get a quick VBG. It's a fast test. It gives you an accurate evaluation of the PCO2 and pH and can be pretty useful in a lot of these other scenarios where you're not specifically worried about oxygenation. All right, Shana, uh, we've got our patient breathing again. They're up in the ICU getting monitored on their high flow. Uh, so let's move on to our next urgent page for altered mental status. Typically, these will be due to medication side effects or delirium, but you really want to make sure you don't miss a stroke or a traumatic injury. So same thing as before, you're on the phone with the nurse, get the initial workup, get their vital signs, get a clinical history, specifically if they've had any fall or if any focal neurological findings that may prompt you to initiate a trauma workup or call the stroke team. After I get off the phone with them, I'm in the elevator checking their chart on my phone. I'm again reviewing their recent anesthesia episodes. I'm reviewing their medications. I'm seeing if there has been any other notes mentioning that they've had agitation or altermental status before. And I'm also trying to see if I can get a sense of what their baseline normally is in the admission documentation or even in the progress notes, especially because it's going to wax and wane if it is delirium. Another quick thing to note of is if they have a history of substance abuse as well. In the doorway, I'm checking my ABCs specifically with regarding mentation. After you have the ABCs covered, you're going to move on to checking their um, ANO status or the GCS, depending on the situation. After doing those ABCs, do a quick exam, see if there's any focal neuro findings. Are they able to converse with you appropriately? Are they saying things that don't make sense? These can all give you a clue to what the diagnosis might end up being. Yeah, I definitely lean on the acronyms that we're all taught about altered mental status. The one I use probably most often is Move Stupid. So I think about metabolic problems, oxygenation issues, vascular problems like a bleed, an MI, or a stroke. Endocrine problems like hypothyroidism or hypoglycemia that can present with altered mental status, seizures, trauma, uremia, psychiatric illnesses, infections, or other effects of drugs or alcohol, including withdrawal. Uh, and that's how I really structure thinking through these patients, at least initially. If you are really concerned about any type of bleeding or stroke, consider getting a CT non-con of the head. Once you figure out which precipitating causes are present and which ones have been ruled out in the patient, try and optimize the patient's pain control, their sleep-wake cycles, the number of lines, drains, tubes they have sticking out of them, and their medications to minimize the worsening of their delirium. And in these patients in general, try and avoid any sedations unless the patient is truly a danger to themselves or others. Generally, you should be talking to your seniors about this before starting them. All right, we did the work on Nina, and it looks like the patient was just sundying. We got their sleep-wake schedule on a regimen now. We optimized their medications, and they have calmed down a little bit. 
let's move on to next patients who is presenting with oliguria. How are you approaching this? All right, oliguria, another very common uh, postoperative page in our patients. Most commonly, I think I see oliguria in the setting of hypovolemia, but you definitely don't want to miss other causes of oliguria, including things like bleeding, re intrinsic renal issues, urinary obstruction, or low effective circulating volume due to shock. So on the phone with the nurse, I'm asking if the patient has a Foley catheter in, asking if it's been flushed, if they have one, uh, and if it's patent. If the patient doesn't have a Foley catheter, I can ask for a bladder scan. Uh, I don't really consider these to be very accurate, but it does tell me if there's a lot or not a lot of urine in the bladder, and that can give me a sense of whether the patient seems to be making urine or not. I ask for a full set of vitals, and I make sure that the recent charting of the urine output is updated so that I can reference it as I walk up to the patient's room. When I'm in the elevator in the hallway, I review the chart for any history of renal disease. I look at the ins and outs trend over the past couple of days. Uh, is my patient eating or drinking? Are they on fluids if they're not? Or if do they have a reason to need any extra resuscitation that maybe they haven't gotten already? Similar to all of our other patients, immediately after arriving to their room, I confirm my ABCs. Usually this is less of an issue in patients who are oligorrheic, especially if that's the main finding that you're working up. However, these patients also can be in shock and have other acute signs and changes. So you definitely want to make sure that you're not missing somebody who's a lot sicker than they may present initially. I always confirm myself whether the Foley looks to be working. Um, basically, that helps me to rule out post-renal causes of oliguria. Then I move into my more specific oliguria toolkit. I think in most patients, you can generally safely do a fluid bolus challenge to see if that yields a response in their urine output. And that's a pretty safe step for the vast majority of our surgical patients. I'll typically get a basic set of labs, including a BNP, CBC, and urine electrolyte. This really helps me to rule out pre-renal or other etiologies that might be contributing to the low urine output, as well as calculate Athena, which can help me identify whether the oliguria is due to a pre-renal, renal, or post-renal issue. In almost every case, uh, if a patient is oliguric, I generally try to avoid nephrotoxic medications. So I'll stop things like NSAIDs if it's possible uh, and other medications that are known to be nephrotoxic. If my patient has been responsive to the fluid bolus that I gave, then great. Likely it's a pre-renal cause of oliguria and I can just stay on top of the fluids as long as the urine output and other signs don't change and if they continue to be responsive. If a patient isn't responding to fluids, then I start thinking about other pre-renal, renal, and post-renal causes of oliguria. In terms of pre-renal causes, I think about things like other states that might lead to low effective circulating volume, things like heart failure, third spacing, and sepsis, where the blood volume is there, it's just not getting to the kidney. Intrinsic renal causes of oliguria can occur even in post-operative patients, though they're slightly less common, and this includes things like ATN. Finally, while by this point I'm generally convinced that there's not a obstruction at the level of the urethra because I have a Foley catheter or I've looked at a bladder scan, obstruction can happen higher up in the urinary tract and a renal ultrasound can help identify it. All right, we've uh, got our patient urinating again. Fortunately, they responded to a quick fluid bolus and they're doing much better now with their Foley and I'm just keeping an eye on their urine output. Uh, Shanaz, let's go into our last scenario, a tachycardic patient. Tachycardia is uh, most common. It's a setting of sinus tachycardia and with poor, poor pain control, especially after surgery or agitation. Hypovolemia can also lead to tachycardia. But the few things you want to make sure you don't miss when evaluating these patients include an MI, cardiac arrhythmias, 
or potential PE. While tachycardia is a really common post-op symptom that can develop, sinus tachycardia can be the first symptom of any of these don't miss scenarios popping up. On the phone, when I'm talking to a nurse, I'm requesting for a full set of vitals, making sure the ones that are in the chart are most recent. I start working on some basic labs that I know I'll get, draw on either an ABG or VPG, troponins or an EKG. In the elevator, I'm looking at the chart, checking their full INOs. Uh, I'll look at their baseline cardiac history if they even have one. Um, I'll check about notes uh, regarding their pain control or whether or not they had any other episodes of agitation, if their pain medications were altered, like if it was recently decreased that day. From the doorway, right away, we're doing our ABCs again, checking their airway, checking their breathing, pan circulation. The focus exam this time will be on their cardiac and pulmonary exam. If we are worried about potential MI, getting troponin started, considering escalating care, calling a rapid response, getting them transferred over, getting cardiology on board. If we're not concerned about MI, check the 12-lead EKG for any type of other arrhythmias. There are some arrhythmias that do need urgent or emergent management as well, such as AFib with RVR, BFib, VTAC, or SVT. In addition to hypovolemia, sinus tag can also be an early sign in PE or sepsis, so you should have both of those on your differential as well and work them up if there's any clinical signs pointing you that direction. If you've managed to rule out all of these scary or life-threatening causes for tachycardia, then think about things like pain or agitation. Of all those tachyarrhythmias, I think AFib with RVR is the one that I managed most frequently as an intern, so it's probably worth reviewing the typical management algorithm for that arrhythmia. In general, if you have a stable patient, you can start with a dose of metoprolol. It's 5 milligrams IV, and you can repeat that three times, usually spaced about five minutes apart. Depending on the circumstances and the patient's response to metoprolol, you may also consider diltiazem or amiodarone pushes in a stable patient. If the patient fails to respond to any of those medications, you also can consider starting them on an amiodarone or diltiazem drip. This is typically the point where I like to engage cardiology uh, to help with managing this in the longer term. Uh, and this also typically requires transfer to a higher level of care than the acute care floors in most hospitals. In an unstable patient in AFib with RVR, you need to consider cardioversion. This is definitely something where you should load the boat early and get your seniors involved so that they can help you. I'll also often call a rapid response and a reminder that this is synchronized cardioversion uh, usually starting around 120 joules. Yeah, these, these patients can definitely be scary, and these patients can get pretty sick very quickly. So I think having your, your ears perked up whenever you get one of these pages, developing a systematic way to review them, including starting with your ABCs every single time you see one of these patients, and then knowing your resources around the hospital and within your own team to make sure that you load the boat and call people early. All right, that's a wrap for today. We'll see you tomorrow for the last episode of our intern boot camp of 2023. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. 
Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.